0: Concerns about COVID-19 vaccines persist, even as the FDA has approved Pfizer's two-dose series. As physicians continue to educate patients on the importance of vaccination, it's crucial to be empathetic to concerns. Dr. Marcus Griffith describes his approach.
1: It's sharing you know, my experience seeing patients in the office. and was also sharing with them my initial hesitancy. I had some hesitancy in the very beginning. I had some of those realistic concerns that they had until I had to do rounding at one of our hospitals and I saw what was happening. And at that point I said, I don't want this. I don't need this. Don't bring me back in here until I'm vaccinated.
0: That's Dr. Marcus Griffith with the Southeast Permanente Medical Group, our expert today on COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. In this episode of Moving Medicine, he's joined by senior AMA news writer, Sarah Burke, for a conversation on how to approach patients' vaccines concerns through community and empathy. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. Here's Dr. Griffith and Sarah Burke.
2: We're going to cover about um, the experience in addressing vaccine hesitancy with underrepresented groups, some of the work that you've been doing this year?
1: So, you know, I am um, um, a psychiatrist by training and also board certified in obesity medicine. And I've been involved with um, um, the Southeast Permanente and Kaiser Permanente's vaccine campaign for two years now. It began with um, the flu campaign. And, uh, you know, because we recognize that, uh, you know, uh, communities of color have been very hesitant to get vaccinated, period. And so it started with our work with the flu campaign that naturally transitioned over into the COVID 19 campaign. So, uh, been doing work within Kaiser Permanente, um, the Southeast Permanente Medical Group, and then also on um on my own through my involvement as an officer with the NAACP so it's it's really takes uh an effort for the entire community to get this condition under better control
2: absolutely that's wonderful that's elegantly said when you uh are addressing vaccine hesitancy is this occurring when you're speaking with them in your office or is this more of a boots on the ground initiative reaching them where they are?
1: It's every single contact. So it, it happens uh, just like for example I just had an office I just had a video appointment just a second and a patient of mine is a a patient's family is fully vaccinated. And they asked me some questions just now about having recently been exposed to someone at their job who tested positive for COVID and wanted to know what to do. And so I had reached out to our head of infectious diseases. This is a question a lot of people been having. I reached out to our head of infectious diseases Dr. Scott Cutro at the Southeast Permanente Medical Group. And I read to them what he told me to do. He basically says that, um, you know, so so anyone who's who's been vaccinated and asymptomatic and you're exposed to a person with COVID-19 does not need to quarantine. But you're very mindful if you do, do develop symptoms, then to get tested, And then you would quarantine if you become positive. So using each patient encounter to talk about what's happening in your life, if they're vaccinated, if they're not vaccinated. But using my experiences in relationships with patients who you've been seeing and building on that trust to let them know, hey, this is a real condition. You see lots of information, disinformation misinformation do you trust me do you trust your doctor do you trust your nurse have not led you astray for the past 10 years 20 years i'm not going to lead you astray on this so building on your um, relationship for your patients when i'm at the barbershop for example and sitting in a barbershop where i've been going for 25 years and having conversations with folks in there talking to them about what you need to do, what you don't do and work with NAACP. So it's, so it's, it's just that thing that I've seen as a part of me and the need to do is like, every single place you can have a contact, have a contact. Um, uh, through our work with, with Kaiser Permanente and Southeast Permanente uh, Medical Group, we've been doing a program called Real Talk. And part of Real Talk, we've been reaching out to community organizations and teaming up with with churches and having virtual discussions with with members of churches about um, what's real and what's unreal about this condition, what to do and what not to do.
2: What are some of the reasons that these individuals or patients are hesitant? Are they sharing some of those hesitancies with you?
1: Yes. So there is a whole variety of reasons. Okay, So, one of the most troubling ones I I have was again another patient that I uh, encountered just two days ago. She's a school teacher. She has a BMI of 70. She weighs 500 pounds. So, if she was to have COVID, she might not make it to the hospital in time because of she really deteriorated. She's, she's really a ventilator candidate. So what was very disturbing about me, uh, you know, during this interview, I asked everyone about their vaccination status. You know, Have you been vaccinated? And she said no. And I then, I then wanted to find out why. And her explanation was this, that she's never gotten sick before. She's never come down with the flu. She never had the chicken pox. And she believes that she is immune and won't get COVID. And then she said, in fact, I've been intentionally trying to catch it, going around people who have tested positive so I can perhaps get this, get it naturally and develop a natural immunity. I then said, I paused and I said, you know, please, that is not the way to go about doing this. It is unsafe, it's dangerous, that you have diabetes, you have severe obesity, you're at the greatest potential to have complications. I said this is sort of like, and I try to use some real-life examples, to say this is sort of like a person who's, you know, in the water and you know it's shark infested and other people have been attacked by the sharks but you haven't it's only a matter of time before the shark gets you and you don't want to be a victim and so and then using those conversations to talk about this vaccine um how you know so some of the concerns they say well it was developed too quickly and then I use the time to talk about, well, it really wasn't developed as quickly as you think. And use some of the history of, you know, that that the uh, SARS viruses have been around forever and that the the H1N1 virus that, that caused the 2009 pandemic provided this model that scientists were able to use information from that pandemic then that allowed this vaccine to be developed now, that we got lucky that everything came into place because of those prior experiences that we were able to develop this vaccine the way it was. Sometimes people will say, well, it was just so fast. I said, well, it's also a difference in technology. So I'll talk to them about, um, I trained at University of Cincinnati. Uh, that's where the uh, Johannes talked about the polio vaccine. So I use a polio as an example. So. Johannes Salk in the 1950s says, Eureka, I've developed the polio vaccine. So what happens next? He can't use his cell phone because it hasn't been invented. He can't share his data by a fax or computer or whatever. So it all has to be mailed to all these people throughout the world. Then they look at and how do they convene, blah, 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 blah. Now someone says, Eureka, I've developed a cure for COVID they they can upload it, they put it in the computer, boom. And a million of the smartest people in the world can look at it one time, use computer models. So it's a different technology. So it's that person that says, oh, I don't like to use a regular phone. I don't like to use a cell phone. I prefer to use a landline. All it can do is that, With your cell phone, you can do your taxes, you can book your travel, you can find your directions of how to get to from Atlanta to Macon you know, you can do everything. So it's the difference in technology now versus that technology that was in the 50s. So, you know, so I'll use those as examples to help them understand this is technology of how and why we developed it so rapidly. And for all those people that died, it didn't happen quick enough for them.
2: Those are all good points. It, It sounds like the key there is using those examples and those storytelling abilities to reach those patients to show them real-life examples.
1: Yes, and your relationship with them, that that you're trusted by by them in childhood immunizations, in the treatment of their cancer, in the treatment of their depression, that we want to help you with this as well, and this is no different than those other conditions.
2: Do you know, even a ballpark number, do you know how many individuals who you have spoken with who have changed their opinions on the COVID vaccine?
1: Ballpark, I would have to say probably 50%. I think half of them after conversations did. Um, and it's, it's, it's being real. It's sharing you know, my experience seeing patients in the office. It was also sharing with them my initial hesitancy. I had some hesit- hesitancy in the very beginning. Uh, I had some of those realistic concerns that they had. Until I had to do rounding at one of our hospitals and I saw what was happening. And at that point I said, I don't want this. I don't need this. Don't don't bring me back in here until I'm vaccinated. And so and so it's sharing with people that this COVID illness is like anything, unlike anything we've seen. If you have a health condition and get it, it will make it 10 times worse. If you get it and survive, you will have potentially long-standing consequences. It causes everything you can imagine. It can cause nerve problems, heart problems, lung problems, uh, profound depression, anxiety, memory loss. It's something you don't want to get. And informing our patients that our treatments, once you have it, aren't really that good. The best treatment is to not get it to get vaccinated, to wash your hands, to socially distant, to, um, you know, use, use science, use the laws of nature. The laws of nature help to guide us, and the laws of nature often are unforgiving when you don't follow her rules. So follow those rules, and you'll have the best chance of, of being healthy.
0: Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org movingmedicine.
2: What were some of your hesitancies in the beginning?
1: My hesitancy in the beginning was, again, well, kind of like theirs. Ah, oh, this vaccine, you know, this thing. Maybe it did come out a little too quickly. Until I got more information about, it wasn't as quick as we thought. Uh, and that had to, has to do with reading. And then, of course, you know, when you read information, it could be a little bit skewed. But we're very fortunate here, and in our in our group here in Georgia. To have Doctor Felipe Labello, and he's a epidemiologist, and he was involved on the um, uh, in President Obama's administration on the H1N1 campaign in 2009. So he he has he has gone a long way to help educate me and our peer group on on this virus how it works, and so we've been doing uh, campaigns together. Um, um, I got approached uh, uh, about a month ago by Georgia Tech athletics because uh, a number of the um, um, sports teams were very hesitant about getting vaccinated for fear that number one, women athletes were fearful that uh, they might uh, have issues with fertility later. The guy, the athletes are also concerned that they get vaccinated, it might impair their performance. So we, did, uh, we put together a program uh, with four former athletes. Uh, myself, I ran track. Dr. LaBello is a professional soccer player. Uh, our pulmonologist, Dr. Reggie Mason, is a, uh, on the board for the Atlanta Track Club. He was a distance runner. And another athlete we had, Dr. Chandrisa Smith, was a, um, a uh, college softball player. So we brought together four clinicians who were former athletes, to talk about the virus uh, to Georgia Tech Athletics and so um, I followed up with the director of athletics just two days ago and he said that uh, three-fourths of those that were hesitant at the time of the um, program did get vaccinated.
2: Not just
1: programs but they also stiffened up their testing regimens to ensure that they would but but that was something that you know, I, I felt good that, that we all did together to make a difference in our community
2: i think that's wonderful that's really great that that many people moved forward with it um, do you think it also helps improve messaging for underrepresented groups to hear this information from someone that looks like them so like a black physician like yourself
1: yes so when it's someone who looks like you who lives where you live it goes the same places that you, the same barbershop, the same church. It does help with that, um, as opposed to um, messaging coming down from above to say that you have to do this, you need to do this. So when it's, when it's coming from people you know and trust, you, uh, you can receive the information better.
2: And do you also think that the FDA's approval of the Pfizer vaccine will also help reduce some of that hesitancy?
1: I really hope it does. Um, I I had an encounter the other, uh, about a a month ago with someone, and of course, every patient visit, I I talk to them about, you know, have you got vaccinated? And this young lady's argument was, well, it's still experimental. I'm not going to get this thing until it is FDA approved. I then quickly said to her, said, well, sure, it is experimental it's not it's only for emergency use but remember this virus is not following any rules we have to do whatever we can to combat it and i understand your concerns about it being um still in the emergency use and so for experimental but when i look at your history you were doing molly you were doing acid so this argument doesn't necessarily follow that you don't want to put this in your body because it's experimental where you're experimenting with
2: drugs. doesn't make sense. That, that's a great point. I heard someone say that earlier as well, and I, that blew my mind. I was like, I didn't even think about, about that, but that's a great point. Um, and along those lines, there is the growing spread of transmissible Delta variant and the pressing need to get more vaccinated um, is that covered in your conversations as well? And do the variants impact their decisions at all?
1: Yes. Um, so it's it's also kind of discussing that, you know, so I, I try to use some of the, a little more history that, as we know, viruses, infectious, disease, infectious diseases have been circulating the earth since people and animals and plants were on earth. So the life expectancy of an American in 1900 was 40. The life expectancy of an African American in 1900 was 32. And in in 1900, what people died from was infectious diseases, polio, tuberculosis, influenza, pneumonia, diarrhea. Today, because of all the vaccines we've we've received, our antibiotics, our life expectancy up until this year, which we now know has gone down at least a year because of COVID, was around 80. So, it's the the advent of vaccinations, of technical, techn, technical advances of, of antibiotics that has allowed our, our life expectancy to double in a hundred years. And so, it's part of that education that, you know, I'd say, you know, when I was five years old, I remember, I think it must have been the smallpox vaccine because, you know, smallpox has now been eradicated. But we were in school. We were all lined up and they were shooting us in the arm, whether we liked it or not. And we got the shot. We didn't know what was in that. But this vaccine is so much different because of the transparency. We know what it is. We know who's developed it. We've seen this whole process of how, how it happened. So this issue of the transparency and that particularly in minority populations, when they think about Tuskegee, the ghost of Tuskegee still are alive in this and they think that you know, this is is this is, um, um, another experiment.
2: How do we establish trust in healthcare, including the COVID-19 vaccine with Black, Indigenous, people of color? groups and historically underrepresented populations.
1: So it, it has to happen from a true team and community approach. That it's it's not enough as a healthcare provider to say, hey, you need to do this, but it's partnering with you know other organizations, whether it's churches synagogues, mosque, community groups, whether you're going to a, a rec center or a senior center, um, as sports teams are doing it. So it's, it has to be that whole community that reaches others. I have, um, what I've tried to do in my all my patient appointments is to make them ambassadors to say, if there's someone that you love who's not vaccinated, please share your story with them. Uh, There have been times when I've had a patient who's been vaccinated and she shared that, you know, her sister is unvaccinated and I've invited her to join our next video appointment so we could talk together. So it's just using whatever tools and opportunities that you have to talk to someone, to let them know that you know, I hear your concerns, but let me tell you what, what the, the correct information is. Um, and correct information is so important because even amongst our peers, um, some of our peers aren't getting the latest information from uh, medical organizations to direct them, and they may be giving patients the wrong information.
2: Is there anything else you'd like to add that's important to emphasize or highlight about vaccine hesitancy and the work you're doing?
1: The, I think the thing that I'd like to add is just to encourage each person to be a, a good citizen, um, to be kind, kind-hearted, and for those, for one reason or another, if they are hesitant about getting vaccinated, to not judge them in a harsh manner. It's very hard as a as a doctor when you're, you know, treating patients who are very ill, and then you potentially could, you know, bring this disease home and give it to your child who's not of age to be vaccinated. So it's it's hard emotionally to accept that, but I think we have to try to do all we can to encourage um, our docs to be open-minded and not be judgmental about those that don't get vaccinated and then Try to use your relationship with them to to get them to get vaccinated. And if you don't have that relationship with them and you look in their medical record, you can see perhaps where they've been seeing uh, you know their pediatrician or their oncologist for you know ten, fifteen years, that we can then communicate with them to say, hey, Uh, Ms. Smith is very hesitant about getting vaccinated. We know you have a great relationship with her. Please tell her how important this is that she trusted her life to you when she had her mastectomy or her chemo, that she can trust her life to you in the same way related to this.
2: That's wonderful and so eloquently put. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me, and I want to thank you, Dr. Griffith, for sharing this important information about vaccine hesitancy. It has truly been wonderful speaking with you.
1: No, thank you. It's, it's an honor. and it, it, It's, uh, you know, telling the story helps me to deal with
0: all that's going on right now, too. So thank you so much. You just heard from Dr. Marcus Griffith with Southeast Permanente Medical Group and AMA senior news writer Sarah Berg on using a community-based approach in addressing vaccine hesitancy. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org podcasts. Thanks for listening.